0: Well, good morning again, Rock Hill. Man, I'd love for you to grab your copy of God's Word, whether that be in print or that be digital, and turn to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew 7, walking through a series just like Jesus threw on the Mount, but Merry Christmas. Uh, okay. Now, I always feel awkward saying Merry Christmas in November, but man, when it hits December, man, I want to say every time I see you, Merry Christmas man it, i love this season i love this season but i've worked with kids and i've worked with students and i've worked with college students and even adults and now as a pastor i've pastored longer than i have been in those other departments but in all of that season i have found two very contrasting groups of people i mean, it really just boils down to these two different groups of individuals whether that be kids youth College students, adults, and even uh, church-wide; those those two contrasting groups consist really of, of of these two individuals. One, on one hand, you've got the individual who doubts their salvation. They doubt their salvation. However, they they give faithfully, they show up regularly, they serve dutifully, if you will. They are engaged, and, and in fact, they are trusting in the Lord day in and day out. Yet. They doubt their salvation. On the other hand, you have the individual, they never doubt their salvation. They, they never doubt it, yet they don't give, they don't show up, they don't serve. And you would even say that Jesus has no part of their marriage, no part of their parenting, no part of their money, no part of their work, no part of their hobbies, and certainly no part of their life, yet they have zero doubt they're saved. Now in life, as a pastor, there's one of these two groups that grieves me the most, and I will let you know it's this second group. See, on one hand, you've got the person who doubts their salvation, but they shouldn't. But on the other hand, you have the person who doesn't doubt their salvation, and they should. It's these two groups that Jesus is going to really speak to towards the end of his sermon. Now, you have to remember that Jesus in Matthew 4, 5, 6, and now 7 is preaching a sermon. I think sometimes the, the, the thing that we fail to do is often put things into context for us when we preach through verses of the Bible. Jesus didn't stop after one or two verses and say, okay, let me explain what's going on here. That's what we do. Jesus preached this seamless message to everyone, and he's coming here to chapter 7 of Matthew, and I think Jesus is showing us what good gospel preaching is. See, good gospel preaching doesn't just leave it hanging and go, well, I don't know what you're supposed to do with that, but go go, go do whatever. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus is showing us an invitation. Jesus is actually preaching an invitation. He's saying there's a group of people that doubt their salvation, but they shouldn't, and there's a group of people that should be doubting their salvation, but they don't. And we're going to pare down for a minute for you to realize which group am I in. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to see how there's a reality of there are some things that should cause you to have assurance, and then there's some things that should not be the basis of your assurance. See, I don't want you to walk away here doubting your salvation when it's sincere and true and real. But what I do want you to do, is the question, am I my assurance on the wrong things? So if you have a Bible, it's going to be in Matthew chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 21 this morning, 21, if you're there, will you say word? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you law breakers. See, in our text, we have two end games. On one hand, you have those that are assured of their salvation. On the other hand, you have those who are not sure. And more than anything else, when I read this text, it's one of the more terrifying texts, I believe, in all of the scriptures. It's a terrifying text because you begin to read it and go, man, there are some people that the tragedy of life is that they'll stand before God one day and they will think that they're saved and they are not. They've done all kinds of great things in their life. They've even done things in the name of the Lord. And yet, when they stand before the Father in heaven, he'll look at them and say, I never knew you. There was never a moment where you had come to faith. There was never a moment where you trusted in me. There was never a moment where you surrendered your life. I never knew you. Tragic text this morning, sadly. That person who stands before God and they are declared, I never knew you, they will spend an eternity separated from God and all of their life has been staked on a lie. But I don't think this text was given to us by Jesus so that we would be terrified, although a little bit of the fear of God should be on us a bit. I don't think Jesus was doing that. I think what he was trying to expose was where you are placing your assurance of your salvation. And by highlighting this, Jesus is going to show us that there are three areas that you should not be sure in, but there's one area that you can. So, how can we be sure? Well, the first thing we have to understand is what should not make you sure. What should not make you sure of your salvation? Jesus is going to tell us in verse 22, He's going to show us, he's going to say on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Now, what's interesting about this is that what he says right before, he says on that day, many. Now, it's interesting because this isn't just a coincidence that Jesus does this. The reason why Jesus says there's many is because he's already said it in verse 13, hasn't he? He said, he says, it's the narrow gate and the difficult path that leads to eternal life and the wide path and the easy, or the wide gate and the easy path that leads to destruction he's indicating that there are many who will buy into this idea that they truly are saved, but they really are not. And so he says, hey, you need to understand that they're going to come and they're going to face the Father in heaven and they're going to say, Lord, Lord. Why does he tell us this? Because he's telling us that your assurance of your salvation should not be on what you know. Your assurance of salvation is not to be based upon... Your knowledge, what you know, Lord, Lord. It's interesting that Jesus highlights this. Jesus is telling us this because these people aren't coming to him rudely. They're coming to him with respect. They're saying, Lord, I understand the right language to use because I know who you are. You are the Messiah. If, if anything, as a Jew, the greatest thing you could do is declare that Jesus is the Lord. It would prove your salvation in one level or not. But he says it in verse 21, then he says it here in verse 22. Hey, your assurance should not be based upon what you know. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, the Lord Lord is used multiple times, some 11 times. In those times that it's used, up to these seven chapters, the 11 times that it's used, it's used out of respect and actually identification of Jesus as being the Messiah, But calling him Lord, just stating this belief that Jesus is God, that doesn't save you. Just making the declaration, Jesus is Lord, isn't going to be the the basis of your assurance. It should not be. But when you say Jesus is Lord, it means that you surrender your life, you surrender to his ways, you fall under his authority, he is to be the boss of your life. But just saying, Lord, Lord, doesn't mean that he actually is. I mean, for the Jew, again, they were faced with the consequence. If you declared Jesus as the ultimate supreme ruler, you could face death. But he's saying many will come. He's not saying just a few will come. He's not saying just a, a random amount. He says, no, there's going to be a lot of people who will stand before the Father one day, and they'll say, Lord, Lord, but he will look at them and say, I don't know who you are. It's not enough just to say, Lord, Lord. Remember what James said about this? You, you know James. James chapter 2, verse 19. He says this, you believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. What's he getting at? He's saying the demons declare, Lord, Lord. They know who Jesus is. Hey, that's the son, that's the son of God. That's, he is who he says he is. But that doesn't mean that you're saved. Just agreeing with the facts doesn't mean that you believe the facts. Your knowledge of Jesus Christ is not sufficient to assure you of your salvation. Now, don't mishear me. You have to call on the name of the Lord. You have to confess the Lord as your lord you have to come to a place of surrender and say i'm trusting everything that i know about god and everything i know about myself i'm trusting in him today you have to make that declaration you have to make that confession but that won't assure you many many on that day will have all the right answers they'll know all the bible trivia many will know the right books to have read they will have all of them in their libraries Many will know the right verses to quote in a time of crisis. Many will have the right degrees on their walls hanging up to show to others how much they love the Lord. Many will listen to all the right Christian stations and their Spotify will reveal that they love to listen to worship music and nothing else like bro country. But Jesus will look at that person and say, depart from me. I never knew you. But here's our challenge today, because I think this is what happens a lot in our culture. We, we equate familiarity with Jesus as faith in Jesus. We think just because you're familiar with him, that means obviously you have faith in him. But all you've done is just grown up in a church environment or a culture, a Christian culture. You've learned the language. You've learned what to do and what not to do. You've learned how to sit quiet. You've learned to undo a peppermint without making any noise. but you have no faith in Jesus. So it's not in what you know. Because if it's just what you know, then it would require nothing else from you. But notice what he says. It's not just what you know, knowing that he is the Lord, but it's also not in what you say. He says, many will say to me, and then he says, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we declare that you were the Lord? Didn't we speak truth? Now he's talking about predicting the future. He's saying, didn't we say the true things about who you were? They were saying that Jesus was the Lord. They were verbalizing the, even the hope of the gospel. They were announcing, and that announcement to them was their defense and proof of their salvation. John, uh, John uh, Stott, in his commentary, he, he gives these four things about this comment. He says, they, these people are polite. They're, they're nice they're not rude to Jesus. They're not rude about anything. They're, hey, they are they are customary, they respect Jesus, they're polite, but they're also, also orthodox, meaning, not only are they orthodox, it means that they, they are saying true things about Jesus. They're nice, they're saying true things about Jesus. They're fervent. Lord, Lord, didn't we? Didn't we do this? They're fervent. But then they're also public, prophesying and doing miracles and casting out demons, that's not done in private. That's done publicly, in front of others. Now when you read this, you might go, man, I I know it's Sunday morning, but I haven't prophesied, I haven't done any miracles, and I certainly haven't cast out, out any demons. Some of you might on the way here, but I'm not just, I'm not gonna go there. But you say, man, that person who prophesied and did miracles and cast out demons, man, they've done more than I've ever done in my walk with Jesus. But Jesus is telling us that hell will be full of people who cried out, Lord, Lord, full of people who prophesied in His name, full of people who did miracles, full of people who cast out demons in His name. And He will look at them and say, I never knew you. What's really sad about this is you could probably think about somebody right now who attends a church, but they Do not give signs of authentically following Jesus. In fact, what we do is we just let them keep going on, living their life. This is my life. This is how I live it. Well, 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that if you have somebody who professes to be a follower of Jesus but gives no signs of following Jesus, you shouldn't even eat with them. We go to vacations with them. We have them over for supper. But in the back of your mind, as you're having a conversation with this person, you you, you say, something is off in their walk. I don't believe that they're truly following Jesus. They're following an idea of Jesus, but not following Jesus. And the sad reality in our context is that there's just no affection for Jesus. No evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. This is important. And I'm, I want to be grace-filled as I say it. But this is why the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10, to not forsake the assembly of the saints. The coming together. The, the reason for that is because we all have the tendency. I have the tendency to drift off into sin. And I need those around me who will say, hey, brother, I... You made this comment. I'm concerned about that. It happened this week. I have a group of pastor friends. We share struggles and things that are going on. And one of them privately contacted me and said, Man, I'm, you said something. I'm concerned about your heart. What's going on in your heart? Nothing. But I'm grateful that the Spirit allows us, because of our tendency, to run towards things that are not of the Spirit of Christ. We need the church. You say, you're just giving a commercial for us to show up. Yeah, because the writer of Hebrews gave the commercial. I'm not trying to sell you on something. I'm not trying to invent a new hobby for you. Man, if you just want church to be your hobby, go buy a boat. I don't want this to be a hobby. I want this to be life-giving for you. Say, man, I need these people. Man, I don't like it sometimes that they say things to me that I don't like to hear, but man, I need God's word spoken into my life. I need that IV put in so I can survive the next seven days. Oh, I need these people to call me out on my sin because I have blind spots it's that sometimes I can't see what I'm about to hit. It's often our response to those that we call out in that moment is revealing of the hope that they really have because sometimes you call out somebody who's not walking faithfully in the Lord and they get mad and they get angry and they get arrogant. They go, how rude of you. And they're really just revealing that they're insecure in their own salvation and they should be. Many in hell are there because they profess to have something and sadly, many are sitting in churches all over America who profess to have something they actually do not possess how many funerals pastors have done, how many funerals I have, I have had to do where I sit there and go, this person did not live a life that followed after Jesus. Yet in their Bible, they had a marker on the date that said, oh, huh, this is the day that they were baptized. This is the day that they gave their life to, faith, to Christ. Oh, so therefore, they didn't live like they were trusting in Jesus. Oh, but man, they, they made a profession of faith. Many have made professions of faith, but they never possessed that faith. Many will stand before God self-deceived all because they had assurance of salvation when they shouldn't have. So your end end game can't be based on what you know or what you say, but it also can't be based on what you do. Look, he says, didn't we drive out demons in your name and do many miracles? Look, Jesus. We preached. We drove out demons. People got healed. Miracles happened. Your assurance shouldn't be based on what, no, your assurance shouldn't be based on what you say, and it certainly shouldn't be based just on what you do. Didn't we, Lord? Some of your translations say, did we not? They're standing before the Father, and he asks that old evangelism explosion question that we learned growing up. You meet somebody, and the first question you ask them, if you died tonight, and some, is that a threat? Like, if you died tonight, well, I was going to die, but if you died tonight, and you stood before the Father, why would he allow you into heaven? It's a simple question. These individuals would say, God should let me into heaven because I prophesied. God should let me into heaven because I cast out Demons. God should let me into heaven because I did miracles. The assurance for this individual is based on themselves and not on Christ. When they tried to make a defense before God, they didn't go on about what Christ had done, they went on about what they had done. Here's the irony of this moment just picture this a person is standing there before the Father. Jesus is standing there as well, who stands at the right hand. The Father says, why should I allow you into heaven? Jesus, standing there with nail-pierced hands. Jesus, standing there with a pierced side, bruised for our transgressions, pierced for our iniquities. Jesus, standing there with outstretched arms. And the individual standing there has the audacity to see Jesus full in view, and still try to make themselves as their defense for their righteousness to be able to enter into heaven. The Christian will look at that moment and go, I don't deserve to go into heaven. I don't deserve to be with you for an eternity. But because, Father, you sent Jesus, the Messiah, to, to live the life I couldn't live and die the death I, I deserve to die. Because of Jesus and it's perfected life, and because of Jesus and his finished work, because of those outstretched arms, because of your grace I can enter in, not because of anything I've done. If you're answering the question on any level with what I have done, you've already missed what it means to be saved. The audacity and sadness to have somebody who's looking at Jesus and yet to not make the connection, it wasn't what they did that gets them into heaven. It's what he did. It's not what you do that secures your salvation, it's it's what he's done. If you answer with I, I did this, you've already missed it. You can have the right knowledge. You can say the right things. You can do the right things. But that doesn't guarantee your salvation. But let me say this. Who you know and what you say and what you do will impact into eternity. So don't mishear me that, well, it doesn't matter who I know. No, it does not matter who you know. Oh, well, it doesn't matter who I say. It does matter what you say. Oh, well, it doesn't matter what I do. No, it does extreme it does matter what you do but you can't use that as the baseline as the foundation for your assurance thankfully here in our text he's going to tell us what should give us assurance so he's already said many in verse 22 but in verse 21 he's going to say now not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven but oh that's so helpful It's always helpful when Jesus shows us, hey, here's here's the answer to the test. I'm telling you in verse 21. and here He says, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what should make you sure of your salvation? What should make you sure is that you are doing the will of your Father who is in heaven. Now, that sounds confusing for just a brief moment because if you're not careful, you'll immediately think about I just gotta do all the right things. If I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and I do this, I've got a ticket to the promised land. I got a ticket to the pearly gates. So you have to ask the question because Jesus bears out the question, only those who do the will of my Father are in heaven, so what is the will of the Father? Now this, my friends, could be an entire sermon series on the will of the Father. But I'm going to try just briefly to summarize what I think the will of the Father is. And there might be some debate on how I answer this. But I think 1 John 3.23. 1 John 3.23 answers for us the command of the Lord, what the will of the Father is. Simply this. For everyone to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and follow him. I think the will of the Father is that his family would ever expand, that people would repent of their sin and believe that Jesus is the Lord. He said, how can you say that? How can you prove? Well, hey, look, when he started this whole thing in Matthew chapter four, what does he say? We've already talked about this. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So from the onset, he's telling all the crowds, my desire is that everybody would repent of their sin and believe. Repent means that you change how you think, you change how you live, you change how you, you love, you change everything to follow Jesus. And then in Matthew 5 and 6, he's going to tell us how that carries out, how your life should be on display is from, from your character to your ethics to how you obey. Then he's going to tell us in chapter 7 as well the application of many of those things and how they bear out with our spiritual disciplines, what godly ambition looks like. I think the desire of the Father is that everybody would come to faith in Jesus Christ. I think that's his desire. I think that gives him more glory. I think that brings us more joy. I think that's how heaven I mean, goodness, if heaven over is overjoyed, they throw a party in heaven when one sinner repents. That seems to me a pretty good sign that's what God wants, and that's His will. So you begin to have to begin to say, well, then what, me doing the will of the Father, what does that mean? It means that you partner with him on what His mission is. You say, I want to be part of whatever He's part of. I mean, think about your kids. Your kids will often cheer for the sports team that you cheer for. Ouch or amen. They'll pick up the the hobbies that you enjoy. They'll often do that because they're watching you. And if you have a teenager and you're concerned about them for always being on their phone, it's only because they've watched you be on your phone. Ouch or amen. I think. For those who have trusted in Jesus, they want to do what the will of the Father is. For those who have not trusted in Jesus, but think that they've trusted in Jesus, they have zero desire to do the will of the Father. This is why we need the gospel every day. This is why we need to realize that Jesus' perfect life and his death on the cross in our place, he takes his righteousness and transfers us to us who are unrighteous. So that when we stand before the Father, we're not seen as unrighteous sinners. We're seen as righteous people in his eyes. It's called the great exchange. You take your filthy rags as Isaiah tells us, and you trade them in and he washes them white as snow. It's why a bride, when she walks into the the, the, the the church or whatever facility they're using or being outside, even they walk down an aisle, they're wearing a white dress. Is that woman pure and innocent and, and sinless? No. But she's been washed by the blood of Jesus, and so she can come down the aisle. And that will happen for us as the church. And then Jesus stands as the groom awaiting his bride, saying, Please, please come. I love you. Come. I want to I want to join with you. I want to covenant with you. Please come. And then there's a group of people who are standing left and right who are cheering you on saying, yes, I got you $10 as your gift. You're welcome. We're so happy for you. We love you. And then you leave that moment and you go have a big party. And for us, we were cheap. We had a root beer float and that's it. Let's go. So we had just that. And all you did, you just have a big party. Why? It's like a celebration in heaven. And the only people who are invited to this who've trusted in Jesus with their life, not through what they've done, but in who and what Jesus has done. This is the good news for us. Now, watch this, though, because he says something. It's a present participle, this word. See, I think we've gotten to this notion of, well, at one time, I walked the aisle and gave my life to Jesus and was baptized, and I'm good. And I can live however I want. But this word does is this ongoing movement of your life of doing the will of the Father. Daily, taking up your cross and following him. Praising God for what he has done. Praising Christ for his righteousness has been applied to your life. Those who go through the narrow gate, it's also a difficult path. And it all begins with repentance. So the person who has assurance of salvation is the person who's repented. That's the will of the Father. They've repented of their sin The person who has assurance is the person who's not just repentant, but they're trusting Jesus every step of the way. So there's two end games. Two end games of people who seemingly know the right thing, the same thing, that Jesus is Lord. Two end games, people who seemingly know what they're supposed to say, seemingly know what they're supposed to do, But for both of them, their eternity is completely different. So how do you know which end game you're on? It's very simple. The one who's going to hell has trusted in what they have done. The one who goes to heaven has trusted in what Jesus has done. Are you trusting Christ? It's very simple. I don't know why we complicate some of these things. And that doesn't mean if you just read a few verses, you're gonna be healed of all of your ailments. There are churches that will teach that to the own detriment of those individuals who hear it. But what it does mean is that when I'm trusting Jesus, it means I'm trusting him even though it's a difficult path. And why is it a difficult path? Have you ever thought about that? My youngest, Dad, why is it hard to be a Christian? I said, because we have an enemy. Why is it easy for the rest of the world? Why do not things just seem easier for them? They don't have an enemy. You, my daughter, you, you have an enemy who wants to deflate your faith, dissolve it as best as he can. So you, my daughter in Christ, every day, I got to trust in Christ today. I don't want to trust in Christ. You got to trust in Christ. I, I don't want to do it his way. I want to do it my way. You've got, you got to surrender to that. you got to repent of that. I want to hide my sin. I don't want to tell anybody what I did wrong. you got to repent of that every day. Trusting. Until one day, you're standing before the Father. And he says, why should I let you into heaven? you say, that that man right there is why. Not, Not anything. This man you sent, that's why. Many, many will think that they're saved, confident in their salvation, but they are not. May you be among those who stand on that day and say, not because of what I have done. Because of what he has done. Will you pray with me? Father, There are some in this room. There's some in this room that they're a little on edge. They're a little nervous. But Father, that very well may be the Holy Spirit saying, it's time to nail it down. Father, what's so fascinating about this is that it wasn't that, well, I knew you once, but now I don't know you. It's that I never knew you. There may be some in this room, or maybe online, they never have known you. But Father, today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you're calling them to your grace to trust in Jesus for their eternal life, but for their today life as well. And so, Father, if that's this person in this room, would they have the confidence to to just say, I need to repent and believe in the gospel today today? Or maybe there's someone in this room that their assurance of salvation is in all the right places. They just have struggled with believing it. But, Father, your Spirit has confirmed and sealed them. They need to respond in in faith and saying, even when I don't feel it, I want to walk faithfully to you. So, Father, help us in this moment but Lord I also know there's another group of people here that as they heard this today a loved one came to mind very well your spirit was bringing them to mind they're grieving right now over a son or a daughter a grandchild a nephew a niece a neighbor and they're they're worried sick but Father, maybe today they just lay that down and say on another level, one, one level, Father, I repent for not saying anything to this person. But on the other level, Lord, may they come to a place where they'll be receptive to your good news. And give me a chance to speak it to them. So, Father, we come surrendering to you today because you're great and you're worthy to be praised. So Father, help us in this time in Jesus' name.